I'm George Marshall, and you're listening to Contempora, the contemporary classical music podcast. Schubert, part Kurt Vile, with their own lyric beauty. The New York Times said that about the songs of composer Kenneth Frizzell. Yo-Yo Ma, Emmanuel Axe, and Ransom Wilson are among the illustrious artists who have commissioned his work. Kenneth has also received commissions from the Chamber Music Society of Lincoln Center, the St. Paul Chamber Orchestra, Music at Menlo, the Ravinia Festival, and Spoleto Festival USA. Kenneth has been composer-in-residence with the Los Angeles Chamber Orchestra, the Santa Rosa Symphony, and the Isabella Stewart Gardner Museum. We're listening to his Songs in the Rearview Mirror from 2010. This performance was given by Richard Masters and Catherine Finlan, who are touring with the work. They're scheduled to perform it in Carnegie Hall this May. Kenneth Frizzell is our featured composer this time, and he'll be joining us to discuss this song cycle, as well as his influences and career. Thank you so much for coming on the show. I'm happy to be here. I'd like to talk about your songs in the rearview mirror. Uh, first off, did you write the poems for this yourself? I did. Mm-hmm. That's wonderful. What was that process like? Well, I started with the texts, and um, it was written for a very specific um, event. There was a, an exhibition at the Renolda House Museum of American Art of photographs of the great Southern photographer, William Christenberry. And uh, his photographs, he's known for photographing obsessively the same buildings in Alabama, uh, Hale County, Alabama, uh, over a 20 and 30 year period. So you see these buildings sort of fall apart year by year if you look at the series of photographs. And originally the texts were going to be uh, just about the images in the photographs. And the more I thought about it, the more, um, you know, memories of my own childhood. I have a, uh, one of my grandmother's houses was abandoned and fell apart just like 
um, some things that happen in the Christenberry photographs. So it, uh, a big bell went off in my head one day. You know, this song cycle could actually uh, have things about my own childhood in there, which very much relates to these photographs. So the piece became a lot more personal as I was writing it. And I definitely started with the words before I, I put the harmonies and the tunes to it. Um, I went to Hale County, Alabama, where the where the uh, Christenberry photographs were taken, because I wanted to see these places for myself. And uh, when I was driving back, I had a an empty sketchbook, you know, in the empty passenger seat beside me, and I the words just started pouring forth. And the next thing I knew, I had three sketchbooks filled with um, hundreds and hundreds of words that I sort of plowed through to choose from. So the 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 words definitely came before the songs. That's very interesting. And what do these songs explore musically? Um, there's a kind of uh, motoric road trip quality that some of the songs have, that, that you're in the car driving along, and the music kind of pulsates with the energy of, of the highway. Um, there's a, a kind of nostalgic waltz in there, a song about a green warehouse in Alabama. Um, there's kind of a holy roller evangelical preacher song in there which uh, sounds kind of like old-timey gospel that's spliced in with uh, images of all these signs about stop 100 yards ahead you know the peach stand kind of thing Um, and I I sort of imagined you know someone switching channels on the radio and hearing uh, fanatical gospel music coming through and that was inspired by a wonderful Christenberry photograph uh, of a sign that says, I believe in Jesus, do you? Which I thought would make a really cool refrain to that song. Um, there's kind of a vampy song about uh, kudzu, that horrible weed that takes over things all over the South, um, that's written in a kind of Broadway, 20s, 30s, kind of post-ragtime style. Um, so the, the songs, you know, kind of weave in and out of, of different um, different types of music. Um a lot of uh, this kind of a folk element to some of the songs that um, I hear a lot of in, in Appalachian music, that's more of a ballad type of harmony to the songs, and picture them almost being, you know, accompanied by guitar or banjo, even though it's for piano. So uh, it, it, ta- it sort of t- tastes a lot of different flavors, that, that song cycle. Well, you mentioned a folk element, and I'm just curious... How did you develop that in your music, considering you were trained in the so-called high modernist style? Well, before I studied with these high modernist people, um, actually I'm from a very uh, lower middle class, you know, very average family in eastern North Carolina. My parents are both from tobacco farms, and I came to know music through piano lessons. My mother... um, is an incredibly generous person who worked very hard. She was a single parent. She worked very hard to give uh, my sister and brother and I lessons in things that we um, were interested in. So I I was one of the few guys in the mid-60s that was studying piano. Um, it was mostly, mostly a, a girl thing to do. And I, I got to love you know what's called classical music um, firsthand by playing Chopin and Beethoven and WC and all these people, and uh, the older I got, when I was 10 or 11 or 12, I 
became really interested in modern music and Bartok, Stravinsky, Schoenberg, um, and just started, you know, ravaging the local library and the bookstores and trying to find everything I could. Uh, and I had the great uh, privilege of going to the North Carolina School of the Arts when I was 15 to study both piano and composition. So I just, I'm a very curious person and just kept asking questions and looking around and my um, musical interests, you know, kind of spiraled out. Uh, ended up at Juilliard in the mid-1970s. And, and this is when the sort of high modernist um, aesthetic was probably the most influential to me. And uh, my own teacher, Roger Sessions, Milton Babbitt, Elliot Carter, I, I was working very closely with all these people. And um, it was a time where uh, a very highly cerebral... Um, Highly complex, high, very intricately constructed music was was kind of at its peak in the world and had a tremendous influence on me. Um, and you know, I keep my hopefully till the day I die, we'll keep broadening the ripples. And uh, when I got out of Juilliard, I became uh, more interested in other kinds of music and. Uh, American roots music and some things that had. Uh, I mean, I started to go to jazz concerts the last year I was at Juilliard, and the first jazz concert I ever went to was Ella Fitzgerald <laughs> and Oscar Peterson, which is sort of starting at the top. And uh, you know, a lot of '60s rock and roll that I had lost interest in, interest in in the '70s, I, I regained interest in, and you know, um, a lot of Southern folk music. So. Lots of different kinds of music, I think, have um, have influenced me and and uh, hopefully made my music um, have some of the flavor that it has.
Well, some of the songs in this cycle seem to be very personal. What was it like for you presenting these memories to the public? That's a really interesting question. That The songs in the rearview mirror, it's definitely the most um, autobiographical piece I've ever written where the words, you know, are true childhood memories. Some of them go into some rather disturbed, dark, unpleasant um, memories of childhood. Um, so it, it, does, uh, it does make me feel a little vulnerable when I was doing it. Sometimes I feel a little un- uncomfortable hearing it, being in the same hall, hearing it with other people, because uh, some of the songs you know, bring you to places that are not the most pleasant places to be. Um, hopefully the music's doing what it needs to do to make those experiences um, not manipulative, but you know, bring you to the, the emotion that the, that the text is about. Um, I've gotten pretty used to it. I've heard it live eight or ten times now. Um, I've actually played some of the performances as a pianist, and that's pretty easy because you can kind of hide behind the piano playing and worry, worry about all your wrong notes. But I think any time you know, a writer or a poet or people that are used to dealing with words all the time, I, I would think that it, uh, it does present kind of an emotional dilemma when you're putting very personal experiences on the line like that. Um, I mean, it's not exactly explicit in these songs. There, there are a lot of fine lines between imagined things in the photographs and things that, that might have happened to the, the writer or the composer. And, uh, you know, the, the composer's emotions really shouldn't be the issue. But it, it is an interesting thing because I, I don't think I'd ever do another piece like this. It's kind of a, uh, a one-of-a-kind piece. Most of my pieces are more purely, uh, you know, music, a string quartet or a, an orchestra piece or whatever. Um, usually when I get in a hall and I'm listening to my own music, I, I'm i kind of there as the as my own worst critic, and I'll, I'm, I'm criticizing harmonic things that I did or certain lines of poetry that could have been better, that kind of thing. I try to learn from uh, being in the hall and listening to it as an, as an objective listener. So I don't usually get that pulled into the trying to read the vibe of the audience emotionally, you know. But uh, this this particular piece, I mean, there have been lots of people that have come up to me, you know, sobbing at the end that are really taken by some things that happen in the songs, and um, I sort of felt like I had to take care of them. <laughs> so it's just it's a byproduct of making a very personal piece. Oh, wow. Uh, speaking of which, maybe you'd like to talk about the experience of being a professional composer in general? It's yeah, I've been at it a long time. Um, it has its ups, it has its downs. Um, I'm I'm a basically a freelance composer at the age of fifty seven. I have a, a part time teaching job at the University of North Carolina School of the Arts. Um, part of how it's part of what's kept me afloat is uh, is being able to teach. I mean, I'm around very young musicians that are you know seventeen to twenty three or four say every year, um, and I'm very curious in what they're writing, what they're listening to, what what music uh, affects them now, and so it's it's kind of one of the great byproducts of teaching is to find out, um, you know, what's fresh out there, what what are what are people interested in, um, you, you know, one thing about being a freelance artist or a freelance anything is that you kind of have to roll with the punches financially. There's certain years that have been very good with. Um, 
I, I make a lot of my income through commissions, people commissioning new pieces. Sometimes the commissions flow, sometimes they don't. And um, so you have to kind of be in it for the long haul and trust that it's going to, over time, that it's going to even out. If you make a little more money one year, you try to sock some of it away for the for the bad years. Um, and it's it's tough. It's, it's really, uh, there are a lot of, I talk to my students about this a lot, there are a lot of people that really need the security of a full-time job and the security of the benefits. Um, and you have to be a, a rather tough and courageous person to, to roll with the punches if you're gonna if you're gonna be a freelance artist. It's it's not for everybody. Um, but uh, you know the good thing about part-time teaching is that it, it is part-time, and I don't have a lot of extra faculty obligations and committee meetings and all that kind of stuff. I can pretty much um, protect most days uh, for my own work. So it's, um, that's one of the luxuries of being part-time. So it's a trade-off. Um, but, um, you know, you're, you're talking to me kind of at a good time now. I've just finished a couple of big commissions and, um, and, and things are okay for a while, but it's, it's, it's a bumpy ride and I, I wouldn't wish it on anybody (laughs) unless you really know what you're doing. (laughs) Yeah. Life as an artist is usually like that. When you're doing all of these commissions, do you ever feel hindered musically, or do you feel like the limitations actually aid in the compositional process? I think that's right. I mean, I, I love the limitations of a commission. I love knowing, and, and they're very specific usually. It's, it's, commissions are practically always for a specific um, group of instruments. I mean, down to, you know, you're going to get three trumpets or two trumpets or whatever, um, Commissions are usually very specific in terms of how long the piece is supposed to be. I mean, down to the minute. And I find these restrictions very helpful because it, it helps you um, kind of focus the more... Uh, music's a very ephemeral thing. It's it's a bunch of vibrations that don't exist yet until you, <laughs> until you start organizing them. And the more I know about a piece, um, if I know who the performers are going to be, if I know... Even if I know where the hall is sometimes I'll, I'll i'll picture the actual space where the premiere is going to take place everything i know about the situation of the performance actually helps me design something and kind of funnel all this raw energy into something very tangible a lot of people especially younger people i think um you know um find the limitations very difficult and confining um well, why can't it be 10 hours long and why can't I have the largest orchestra in the world and that kind of thing? You know, young people tend to be um, kind of greedy and, and overzealous about things. But I, I find, uh, you know, knowing the time dimension and knowing this, these specifics really helpful in terms of tailoring my image of the piece. And, um, you know, I, I like knowing what the three or four instruments are going to be or what the 80 instruments are going to be if you're dealing with an orchestra. It really does. The more specific I can make the piece, I think, the better it has a chance of, of working within those um, limitations. Fascinating. Well, speaking of limitations, is there anything that you do to combat this type of work? Uh, I believe you're something of a painter as well. Is, is that right? Something, yes. <laughs> something of a painter. Yeah, I love doing watercolors. Um 
my partner and I have a little place up in the mountains, um, right across into the Virginia border, and um, it's a great place to watch the sky and watch uh, the play of light uh, over the valley. And um, I love doing watercolors. I find it really freeing. Um, I don't think I don't think at all when I'm doing it. I just do it. There's there's no um, there's no deadline involved. There's no pressure to get the parts done or the score finished or no performers to deal with. It's just something that's very freeing that I I love the spontaneity of it. Um, watercolors are, are very uh, fluid and finicky medium, and they kind of have their own life. And you, you really have to let go of a certain kind of control when you when you paint them. And I I love that. I love the improvisatory quality of it and the the lyrical quality of it and um, just being able to play with color, how colors bleed into each other and uh, all, all these um, unexpected surprises that happen when you paint in watercolor. It's very liberating to me. I'll bet. Well, it's been wonderful having you on the show, Ken. Thank you so much. My pleasure, George. To hear more of Kenneth's music and to see his beautiful watercolors, visit georgemarshall.net slash contempora or our Facebook page, facebook.com slash podcast. You can visit either of these sites for other episodes and special content. Remember to subscribe to Contempora in the iTunes store. The more subscribers we have, the more exposure it will get, and more people will be able to download and enjoy the wonderful work of the composers we feature on the show. Thanks for listening to Contempora. I'm George Marshall.